one of my favorite stories concerns uh, the appearance of Paul Tillich, who was the uh, uh, noted but very liberal theologian from the University of Chicago at the Pearly Gates. He, he's now deceased, and as the story goes, when he got to heaven, uh, he was met at the Pearly Gates by the Apostle Peter, who, as you know, uh, was the, was responsible for the... Uh, who, who gave as an answer to Jesus' question, who do men say that I am? The words of the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, just that simple statement in response to that question. And when Paul Tillich arrived, Peter says to him, uh, Paul, who do you say that Jesus is? And uh, Tillich thought for a moment, and he said, Theologically, you're the ground. he's the ground of all being. Existentially, he's the ground of the divine human counter. And eschatologically, he's the ground of divine hope. To which Peter responded, Huh? <laughs> Uh, which raises the question in our mind, who, after all, is Jesus? That's a crucial question. To be wrong on that issue is fatal for us as Christians. We have a number of uh, friends and neighbors, people in the community, who are telling us that Jesus is something other than God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will come and knock on our door and and they will tell you that Jesus is a created being. Uh, he's divine in some sense, a, a sort of lesser God than, than God himself, but, uh, but certainly uh, a, a divine being, some measure of deity. Um, our Mormon friends will tell us that Jesus was a man who became God. Some think of Jesus as... Uh, as merely a good teacher, a prophet, slightly mad, as most geniuses are, but uh, nevertheless had some very penetrating insights uh, that he left us about life. On the other hand, uh, Christians for 1,900 years have believed that Jesus is both God, fully God, truly God, holy God, and man, truly man. And you'll find that in our doctrinal statement and in the Apostles' Creed, which I've been given to you in your uh, in the bulletin. Uh, and that is uh, very obviously, quite obviously, the belief of the church from the very beginning. Uh, some years ago, archaeologists were digging in Rome, and they dug down through the roof of what they discovered later was the page quarters. That's where young men in, uh, in the Roman Empire were trained for political life. They were brought in, much as our pages are today, and, and uh, trained or a, a life of politics. And they found uh, uh, some graffiti on the wall. It was a picture of a, of a man, a figure of a man on a cross with the head of an ass, of a donkey. And at the foot of the cross was a young man in an attitude of, of worship, down on his knees, looking up at the figure on the cross. And in, in, a, in scrawl, in a Latin scrawl underneath, someone had written, Anaximenus worships his God. Now, they were able to date this inscription. They know that it was placed on the wall about 150 A.D., uh, within a little more than 100 years after Jesus died, 50 years after the last apostle died. And it's very clear what's going on. Some page is poking fun at young, young Anaximenus, who was a Christian. And it's also very clear that Christians believed at that time in history, 150 A.D., 
that Jesus was God. Now that's uh, that's extraordinary when you think about it. The Christians believe not that a man became God, but that God became a man. And he didn't in any sense relinquish his deity, nor was he anything less than a man. Throughout history, people have emphasized one or the other, but the truth is he is both God and man. That's very difficult for us to understand. We don't have any analogies in human experience to, to explain that. We don't even have the words for it, but, but that's what the New Testament teaches us. And the New Testament is simply a collection of the, the writings of eyewitnesses, the people who saw Jesus. As John puts it, we, uh, we handled him. We, we hugged him. We touched him. We talked to him. And he was a man. But John says he was God. He was obviously a man. There was no question in anyone's mind that, that he, was, he was a real man. He didn't shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground, as some of the heretics uh, taught over the years. He was a real man. He, he put on his trousers one leg at a time, so to speak. He was just like us. He, he had a normal birth. Uh, his conception was unique, but that wasn't known. Mary didn't tell anybody. Luke says that, that Mary pondered all of these things in her heart, and she never did until much later, till Luke began to question her, reveal all the facts about the virgin birth. They, they, they knew there was something funny about Jesus' birth. They knew that Mary was pregnant before Mary and Joseph were married. In fact, that, that was often something they, apparently something they used against Jesus. Once in an argument, in a debate with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were on the losing end, and they said to Jesus, well, at least we're not born of fornication. The implication being, you are. They knew there was something unusual, but they didn't know what it was. He was just born as a normal baby in a stable. He cried like all babies cry. I've never liked that song, No Crying He Makes. It simply isn't true. He was just like any other baby, when he got wet or when he was hungry, he yelled at the top of his lungs. And as he grew up in Joseph's carpenter shop, when he hit his thumb with a hammer, he, he yelled, owie, and, and it bled. He was just like any other man that you meet. If, if he had walked down the street, you wouldn't have thought of him any differently than you think of any man that you see today. He had all the human emotions. He wept. He grew angry at injustice. Uh, he, uh, he grew tired. He needed to sleep. There's one incident where he was so weary, he slept through a storm. The ship was about to sink. And they had to shake Jesus to wake him up. He was clearly a man. No question about it. A man like, like any of us. And yet he kept saying and doing things that, that were so unusual. Uh, on the occasion I mentioned earlier when he went to sleep uh, in the storm, in these inland bodies of water in the, ancient, in the, in the, in the east, near east, have a tendency to become uh, a very, uh, uh, when, when winds strike, uh, the waves get very large. And the ship was about to be swamped. And they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we perish? And he gets up and he looks around and he says, hush. That's literally what he said. And the waves immediately stopped and the wind stopped blowing and the sea was like glass. And all, all the disciples said, what is this? That even the winds and the waves obey. 
Our house backs up to Winstead Park, and the, the joggers excite our dog. And every time they run by our house, our dog just goes berserk. And she runs out in the backyard and barks her head off. And I open up the screen door and yell, hush! And she doesn't pay any attention to me. I have to go out there and <laughs> drag her in by her collar. I don't have that sort of control over the elements, but Jesus just spoke a word to the elements. And, and the sea was like, was like glass. And then there was the time that he visited the tomb of Lazarus. He'd been dead for four years. I said that this morning. I can't believe it. Four days. <laughs> been dead for four days. He was already decomposing. And uh, he just spoke a word, and Lazarus' body was resuscitated, and he, and he walked out of that, uh, out of that grave. And then there were those uh, remarkable claims that he made that probably were very embarrassing to the disciples. You know, uh, normally uh, great men don't make much of themselves. And the greater a man is, the less he makes of himself. Can you imagine, for example, Alexander Solzhenitsyn claiming to be God who came down from heaven? We think he's crazy. Or Robert Frost uh, believing that his poetry was inspired, that every word was authoritative and, and came from God. Those are the sort of sorts of things that we don't uh, normally believe about people, that we think they're crazy or, uh, or terribly arrogant. And yet Jesus made these, these remarkable claims. On one occasion, he was engaged in debate with the Pharisees and... Uh, they said, we, we have Abraham for our father. He is our authority. Why should we listen to you? And Jesus says, just as calmly as though he were commenting on the weather, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And the Pharisees say, now wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham see your day? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he wasn't merely claiming pre-existence. He would have used a different verb if, if he were. He, he would say, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't say that. In that one phrase, I am, he claims to be the I am of the Old Testament, the eternal one. And so uh, we would have no doubt about what Jesus was claiming. John tells us that they picked up stones to stone him because they, they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. See, people normally don't go around claiming to be God and, 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 and get away with it. They lock them up. They put them in a padded cell. But Jesus, almost as though it were a throwaway line, would say, before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one, he says, and not one in purpose, because, again, they, they tried to kill him. And he says, for what good work do you kill me? And, and they say, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying. How do you put together these, his lowly, humble manner and his lofty claims and his penetrating insight into life and, and the things that he said about himself? How could he be so right about everything and so wrong-headed about himself? One of the things that tends to get past us because we, we take it for granted is the fact that Jesus said that he could forgive sins. Now, for example, if Gary steps on my toe and says, excuse me, it's appropriate, it, you know, it's a polite thing for me to say, sure, I, I forgive you, Gary. But suppose Gary steps on Malcolm's foot and I say, I forgive you, Gary. 
you'd lock me up. So who is this who goes around forgiving sins uh, directed toward other people? You, you must think you're God. Well, exactly. And then in one of his, uh, one of the bits of instruction he gives to the disciples, he says, one of these days, I'm going to separate the whole human race into sheep and goats. He's the judge of the whole world. Uh, C.S. Lewis says of him, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but, but let's not come with that patronizing nonsense about his being merely a good teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So when people say Jesus is merely a good teacher, you, you have to face the facts. He, he went too far. He had that embarrassing tendency to say too much. He doesn't leave open to us the option that, that he's just a good man or a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And there was that growing awareness among the apostles that that was indeed who he was. They watched this man walk among them. Who is this? That commands the winds and the waves and, and says he can, can forgive sin and claims to have absolute authority and says that he came down from heaven and who calls himself the Son of Man. That's another one of those titles that tends to get past us because we think, ah, I know what that is. The Son of Man means uh, man. And it is. It's, it's a Semitic idiom for man, a member of the human race. And so we, know, we think when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, oh, yes, that's a reference to his humanity. When he says, I am the Son of God, that's a reference to his deity. But, but the fact is that phrase, Son of Man, is a reference to his deity. Turn with me back to Daniel, the seventh chapter. Uh, in my New American Standard, it's page 1248. Daniel's a little hard to, to find. <clears throat> Daniel saw a vision of thrones set up on high, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. The Ancient of Days here is, is Yahweh himself, the Lord God of Israel. And he's described uh, in terms of his clothing and his appearance. And then in verse 13, Daniel seven thirteen. Have you found it? <clears throat> Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What Daniel saw is someone like a man. He says, I saw a son of man, obviously a human figure, come down from heaven and take his, his seat beside the God of the universe. And to him is given dominion over all the earth, over all peoples and nations. And in the books that, uh, that fall in between our Old Testament and New Testament apocryphal books, they're, they're, called, they're not accepted as a part of, of the prophetic writings, but, but they do tell us of something of Jewish thought during the 400 years between the last book in the Old Testament, which was the book of Chronicles, and the first book in the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew. In, in those apocryphal books, twice, in the book of Enoch and in the book of 4th Esdras, there's a reference to the Son of Man who comes from heaven, a sort of cosmic figure who comes down from heaven to earth and becomes the Savior for Israel. So when Jesus 
began to refer to himself as the Son of Man, everyone knew exactly what he was talking about. It was, this re- it was a reference to this figure in Daniel 7, who comes to, to reign forever. You see, we, we, we just can't look at Jesus and say, well, he's just a man, he's a good teacher. Remarkable insights into life. He didn't leave that option open to us. And as he began to live and speak, serve, people began to sense that there was something extraordinary about him, and they began to put two and two together and realize that he was God come to earth. That he acted just as you would expect God to act if he were here on earth. He did not look like George Burns. He was a a rustic, itinerating rabbi, a carpenter. A man, in every sense a man, but he was also God. That's why Thomas fell to his knees after the resurrection and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, No, 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 Thomas, you got it all wrong. I'm just a good teacher. He, he received Thomas's worship. Now, the apostles then began to, to write down what they had seen and heard. Uh, for example, turn with me to the book of Philippians. This is Paul's view of Jesus. He, he never knew in the well in the flesh. I, I think he probably knew Jesus or had seen him. He was in Jerusalem and had probably heard him teach. But uh, he never became well acquainted with him. He certainly wasn't one of his disciples. It wasn't until much later that he acknowledged Jesus as Lord. And in Philippians 2, he says this about about Jesus. Uh, it's interesting that so, so often these profound theological uh, passages are, are in a setting having to do with very practical things. Paul's concern is a, about a squabble between two women in a church in Philippi. Their names were Iodia and Syntyche. And they, so they couldn't get along. Someone has said that their names were actually uh, odious and soon touchy. Uh, I don't know about that, but they just couldn't get along. And so Paul writes this letter in order to encourage them to, to mend their differences and to forgive one another and love each other. And he surrounds this, uh, this instruction with uh, a number of very profound sayings about, about Jesus. And this is one of them. Verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. If you want a supreme example of humiliation, of humility and, and a willingness to renounce self and serve Jesus is, is that, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word that Paul uses for form, morphe here, means, means not uh, likeness, but essence. He was essentially God. That's what Paul is saying. Everyone agrees. That's the meaning of the Greek term. Paul is is saying, in a roundabout way, Jesus was God. But he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Now, not of his deity. He never laid that aside. How How could God cease to be God? But he laid aside the independent use of his attributes as God. He became a man dependent upon God. And and here, here you have the mystery of of the two natures of Christ. He was fully God, he was fully man, and as a man, he was fully dependent upon God. And I, I can't explain it any further than that. That's just, that's what Scripture tells us. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was, 
and was made in the likeness of men. So God became a man. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God visited this planet in the person of a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the scandal, really, of the cross. We put God to death. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what's not normally known is that Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45 when he says, Every knee shall bow at Jesus' feet. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a quotation from Isaiah 45. And if you go back and look at the quote, it's a reference to Yahweh. That at Yahweh's feet, everyone will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And Paul just very easily transfers that to refer to Jesus because he knew that Jesus was God Almighty. As a matter of fact, the word that he uses for Lord here, uh, as, you, as you may know, that word can also mean sir. It can just be a term of respect. But it was the word which the Greeks used to translate the word Yahweh in the Old Testament, kurios. And it's used throughout the New Testament to refer to Jesus, not simply, as we would say, sir, or in a respectful way, but to denote him as the God of the Old Testament. When Jesus said, for example, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's not saying the Son of Man is Sir of the Sabbath. He's saying the Son of Man is the Lord who who instituted the Sabbath, and therefore he has the right to do with it as he pleases. That's his point. And here you have this reference. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and and great glory. That's when he comes to judge, and that's, that's when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God himself has the name that's above every name. That's, that's the name of, of the God of Israel. Now, Paul wrote about, uh, oh, 50 years. Oh, no, excuse me, 25 or 30 years after Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. The apostle John wrote uh, about 50 years or so. Turn with me to John 1, the Gospel of John. You've heard it said, I'm sure, that uh, Jesus was just a simple uh, teacher, rural rabbi, but the church has distorted his uh, teaching. The apostles never believed that Jesus was God, and certainly Jesus didn't. But as the centuries uh, went by, the, the church added things to the teachings of Jesus, and these are all accretions that developed around the story over a period of time. And And uh, some two or three hundred years later, it was all written down in the Gospels, and that's what we have in the New Testament today. You know, we have a section of the Gospel of John from within uh, 20 years of the death of the Apostle. The the Apostle died, the Apostle John died about 100 A.D. He was the last of the Apostles to die. We have a scrap of the Gospel of John that cannot be any older, any later than 117 A.D. That's 17 years after the death of John. What happened was just one of these things that, that archaeologists stumbled upon in the providence of God. They were uh, uh, digging in Alexandria, and they found a mummy. 
and the mummy was encased in papyrus instead of linen strips. And they began to strip off the pieces of papyrus. And they, they, uh, as they pulled one off, they saw it had Greek writing on it. And they looked at it close, more closely, and it was a section from John 20. And they were able to date this uh, mummy during the reign of Hadrian. Hadrian died in 117 A.D., and they were able to date it by artifacts found in the, in the tomb to the reign of Hadrian. So that within 17 years of the death of the Apostle John, a scrap of his writing uh, had been, uh, uh, you know, it traveled all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to Alexandria and then been discarded. So those who say the Gospels came much, much later are not taking into account the facts as we have John, then, who, who writes his Gospel sometime in the last decade of the first century, puts it this way, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you want to skip down to verse 14, you have the continuing continuation of the argument, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, that is the uniquely begotten Son. He was not begotten in the sense that he was originated. This is a Semitic idiom that infers relationship rather than origination. The word itself has nothing of origination in it. He is the uniquely, uh, he is the unique son. There, there is no one like him. And he's full of grace and truth. You see the argument. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And furthermore, the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what John is saying is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's very clearly what he's saying. When I was in school, we were reading a, uh, a, it's called a Targum. The Targumim were Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament. When the Jews came back from, from Persia, after that long period of exile, they forgot Hebrew. Their national language was Aramaic. And so the scribes of this period translated the Old Testament into Aramaic. That's why Jesus spoke Aramaic. He did speak Hebrew. And most of the other apostles spoke Aramaic as well. There are a number of these targumim, these targums of the Old Testament, Aramaic around. And we were reading one in Jonah, and on the book of Jonah. And, and to my surprise, I started reading the first line, and it said, in the, and, the, and the word of, of the Lord came to Jonah. And then from that point on, the, the targum used the word word in place of the word Yahweh. All the way through the... Uh, through the uh, story of Jonah. The Aramaic word is Mimrah. So that Yahweh was used, or Mimrah, the word word, was used for Yahweh. And you see what John is saying? In the beginning was God himself. He was with God. Oh, that's odd. How can God be with God? Well, that's where we run into the problem of the Trinity. But that's what John is saying. And God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwell means to tent, put up a tent. And that was his humanity. He was God in, in dwelling, a human personality, not just a God, not just a body, a human body, but someone who was holy, fully man. He dwelt that tent. And uh, John says occasionally when the wind would blow, the tent would flap, and we would see his glory, as they did on the, the Mount of Transfiguration and at other times in his life. But he was God become man. 
Now, that's what Christians have always believed. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. There are a number of people around today, representatives of cults, who, who sound very Christian. Their terminology is very Christian. But they don't believe that Jesus is God become man. He's something less than that. He's man become God. Or he is some kind of lesser deity than God himself. But the New Testament message, the gospel message, is that God became a man. And that issue was was fought out in the early centuries of the church because uh, during that time there were a lot of heretics that were attacking that concept, saying that no, no, Jesus is just a man. He's not God. There's a man named Arius who uh, coined a word to describe the relationship between Jesus and God. He said, Jesus is homoousius. It's a Greek word that means, well, you know, homo is the word for the same or like, and ousius means essence. He is like God in essence, but he's not God. He's just similar to God. He's like God. So they, uh, they convened a council to debate this thing, and they went back to the scriptures, and they they worked over these passages that we've talked about. And they concluded, no, that Jesus is not homoousius. He is homoousius. That is, he is the same as God. And the only difference between those terms is a, is a little iota, the, the smallest letter in, in the Greek alphabet. Homoousius, homoousius, uh, homoousius. Just, just one, one small Greek letter. And Arius, who was a very influential teacher, continued to teach his view that, that Jesus is only like God, but he's not God. And the Holy Roman Empire, as it existed then, began to divide over this issue. And Constantine, who was the emperor at the time, wanted to cool things down. His concerns were political rather than, than biblical. He wanted to stop this debate so they could be united. So he said, what's the big deal? It's just a neota. Who cares? And at the heart of the controversy over the scriptural view of, of Jesus was a man named Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria. And he kept saying, it is a big deal. It may just be an iota subscript, but it's a big deal. That Jesus is not like God. He is God. And Constantine said, you know, you're, you're creating division in the empire. You've got to go. And so he was, he was relieved of his position as the bishop of Alexandria. Four times that old man was exiled. And finally, uh, Constantine brought him in before his throne. And, and Constantine represented all the power of the Roman Empire. And he said to Athanasius, you pertinacious old man. He said, don't you know the whole world stands against you? And Athanasius said, then I stand against the whole world. And, and eventually, Athanasius' view won out. In 381, they convened another council one in Constantinople, and they formulate the creed that we go back to today that says that Jesus was holy God and holy man. You see, it, it is a big thing. It's not a small thing. That's why I said in the beginning, if, if Jesus is not God, then that, that undermines everything we believe about the gospel. I can't explain how he could be God and man at the same time, the New Testament doesn't try to explain it. It simply states the fact. He is. And that's the basis of our belief. I've been reading Malcolm Muggeridge's uh, book, Jesus Rediscovered, and 
He says in the end, I came back to where I began, to that other king, one Jesus, to the Christian notion that man's efforts to make himself personally and collectively happy in earthly terms are doomed to failure. He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he is nothing. So at least I have concluded, having failed to find any alternative proposition, as far as I'm concerned, it is Christ or it is nothing. If Christ is not who he claimed to be, then we don't have any faith. Let's forget the whole thing. But if Christ is God, all we can do, as Psalm 2 says, is fall at his feet and kiss the Son. That's the only reasonable response. If he is God Almighty, come to earth, then all we can do is bow and worship at his feet and acknowledge him as God of our life as well. Let's pray. If you've never taken that action, you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, this would be a good time to do it. Simply say, as as the Apostle Peter said, you are the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And invite him to come into your life as king and reign there. It's not enough to believe it. In our, in our minds, we must submit to his will. That's what it means to kiss the sun. It's an, an old figure that, that represents someone bowing at a king's feet and, and kissing the ground as a way of indicating submission. But as our Lord tells us, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. What he wants to do is, is fill us and flood us with himself and give us what we need for all of life. He wants to be our prophet who tells us the truth and our priest who represents us and who, who ministers to us and our king who protects and provides. Will you acknowledge him as, as your prophet, priest, and king? Let's do so quietly in your own heart. Lord, thank you for coming to reign. We, uh, we know as we, as we see the facts as they're presented to us in, in the New Testament that you are indeed God come to live among us. And we, we recognize then the enormity of our crime in putting to death uh, the Lord of glory. We... Uh, We want to worship you and love you and give you the place of authority that you rightly have. We thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.